it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Our coming your way is going to be fantastic. Andy McCarthy just getting out of the shower. He wants me to buy some time. And then Chad Robichaux, former uh, uh, former. Uh, Force Recon Marine, the co-founder of the Save Our Allies program and author of Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Call to Save Thousands. And there's another tell-all book coming out about Afghanistan that is just damning, uh, if it's possible, more damning than ever on this president. Well, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This issue will destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. The migrants, this is a national problem. It should be handled by the national government. But let's be clear, this mess is Trump-like Republicans' mess. Trump Republicans created this mess. Are you insane, Eric Adams? Border busted. Major cities, especially New York City, overwhelmed with illegal immigrants. And the New York mayor blames Trump. Sorry, Dems. Americans are not that dumb, ignorant, or naive. This is Biden's dereliction of key duty guarding our borders and refusing to do it. Number two. I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board. But they keep telling me because this has to be 10 days or something, I got to keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it on when I walked in. Right. Yeah, just giggle while torturing America for two years. And now you mock your own policies. The Fauci follies are back from masks to boosters to child abuse in our in our schools. We have seen this movie before. We lived it. And to quote the who, uh, we will not get fooled again. Number one. I think the message is simple. They're going to throw the book at him on a gun charge that they were previously going to let him actually work off in a couple years. Yeah, that is Harry Lippman, former federal prosecutor. Hunter indicted, yes, within two weeks. The question is, just about a is this just about a crackhead lying about a gun application? What we want is a focus on the foreign business dealings and how it links to Joe, which White House has been desperate to block. We have the latest. Interesting CNN poll. When asked, do you think that Joe had anything to do with Hunter Biden's business dealing? 60-plus percent said yes. A CNN poll. Andy McCarthy doesn't need to be convinced. He's a Fox News contributor, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, uh, best-selling author and great columnist. Uh, Andy, welcome back. Brian, great to be with you. Andy, so many questions, and I want to get to your column, which is great, as usual, about the pseudonames and emails and what the precedent is behind it and what could it be hiding behind it. But first things first, what do you take from the announcement from the release yesterday that David Weiss is pursuing an indictment on the weapons charge? I think he's stalling. What's the po- what is what is the point? First of all, he only told us this, Brian. It's not that he was trying to make an announcement. The judge held his feet to the fire. What happened was the judge was afraid that, given what Weiss's behavior has been up until now, that he was just going to let this whole thing slide while the statute of limitations ran. So she gave him a September sixth deadline to explain what the status of the case was and what his intentions were. 
So he was cornered by the judge. He wasn't trying to make uh, an announcement. He was forced to make one. And the second thing is, this case is five years old. It's the easiest, most straightforward case in the history of cases. Um, it would take about 10 to 15 minutes to present it to a grand jury. The indictment should be about one paragraph long. If you're going to indict it, don't talk about indicting it. Indict it. He didn't need, he didn't need to come in and tell the judge, um, you know, in two weeks, I think we're going to indict. He, why don't you just walk in? You wouldn't even have to have a court hearing if you just go to the grand jury and indict it. So why didn't he indict it? So Abby Lowell wants to reinstate the, uh, I guess, the diversion program that was going to allow him to agree not to do drugs and alcohol and take a gun course and not own a gun again or something like that. And he's like, I want to reinstate it. That's not possible, is it? Well, it's not, but no thanks to Weiss. Uh, the way Weiss wrote the agreement, Abby Lowell's got a good point. What Weiss was trying to do was make the the diversion agreement on the gun completely separate from the plea agreement on the tax stuff so that the collapse of the tax stuff doesn't necessarily mean the diversion on the gun is eviscerated. But the one problem Abby Lowell has is the the agreement, the diversion agreement explicitly says that it's got to be signed off on and approved by the probation officer of the court. Who never signed it. And she, the probation officer refused to sign it. So I think uh, Lowell is right that Weiss is lying, but I don't think it's availing to him because the probation office isn't going to sign off on and it. And by the way, you're never shy about correcting me because I'm not a lawyer. So I'm just going to say this. I don't understand the reluctance to look at the overseas business dealings. If you want to find out how much he paid in taxes and didn't pay, how can you possibly avoid looking how he earned the money and how he earned the yeah, millions of dollars? So, I mean, why, why are we not talking about this? Well, we're talking about it, but the thing is, you know, you, we, let's not misunderstand what Weiss's job is just because he's called a federal prosecutor or now a special counsel. Um, his job here is to protect President Biden. That's what the Biden Justice Department's been doing from the beginning. You couldn't delve into the Hunter stuff without implicating Joe Biden because Joe Biden is the business. You know, they call it the euphemism for this is that they were peddling the, the Biden brand. But what they were peddling was Joe Biden. He is the business and the business couldn't have gone on for years and years uh, very lucratively for the Biden family if he hadn't been all in on it. So. That's common sense, and the Justice Department uh, is, in this instance, protecting the president. That's the reason you're supposed to get an actual special counsel, which means you're supposed to bring in a lawyer from outside the government who is not part of the Justice Department, and at least at the beginning is not part of the right. Justice Department's conflict. Uh, and they won't do that because they're protecting the president. So I, I quickly, when this came out, I thought, is this going to make anything on the other channels besides ours? Even though we're the number one channel, you want to know that people out there are getting educated about what's going on because this election matters so much. So David Axelrod hopped on, who once in a while tends to tell the truth unlike it is. And he was always critical of Joe Biden until he got the nomination. So here's Axelrod's take with Anderson Cooper last night. Cut nine. Even as we speak, they're talking about an, an impeachment inquiry in search of proof that the president had some sort of involvement. So this just adds that coloration. Remember, the Republican, the leading Republican candidate you just discussed, has uh, 91 felony counts against him right now. And they would love to muddy the waters 
And so for the Biden campaign, this is unwelcome news. But he started with this, cut eight. President wasn't involved with this very clearly. This was something that uh, involved something that Hunter Biden did on his own uh, <laughs> and involved his own drug addiction and his own uh, misrepresentation. Right. I mean, uh, enough said. That's what Hunter Biden was just acting on his own. Him and Devin Archer just in the Wild West. Uh, there was an application online for Burisma on the board. So they just filled it out. And then there was an application online for a Chinese energy company linked to the Chinese government. So Hunter, with a business degree and an Amtrak background, thought he'd apply for it. There's nothing to see here. Yeah, well, this was the Obama administration way when Axelrod was in it. You know, you just kept, you tell the big lie, you know, just like, uh, you know, if you want you to, you like your health care, you can keep your health care. You know, just keep saying it. it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. You just keep saying it. The media takes their cues and they keep repeating it and they create a, an alternative reality. That's what, the, you know, the, this expression gaslighting uh, that we use all the time now, they invented it. So this is just what they've always done. But Brian, they're, they're stuck. They've decided to, to cast their lot with Biden. Anybody who cared about the country would look at Biden and say he's not up to the job. Like it doesn't matter that you disagree with him ideologically exactly. like I do or that I think he's a complete mediocrity and has been one for 50 years. The guy patently is not up to the job. But if he were to step aside, then you would have the civil war of the Democratic Party between the progressives and what what passes for mainstream Democrats. And they're not ready for that. They, you know, so they figure you're going to end up with Trump because of the way they played their cards if they don't keep Biden standing like, uh, you know, weekend at Bernie's. So this is what we're going to deal with. And Kamala Harris uh, scares the hell out of everybody, uh, the, the free world and the unfree world. Uh, so, Andy, I got to bring it to your column. So this pseudonym emails dates back to Obama. You, they were communicating with fake emails back and forth. Hillary to Obama. Now we know uh, Joe to Hunter. And we got 5,400 correspondents. But you thought it was important to bring back how we originally found out about this and how they tried to, uh, uh, to talk us off the ledge. Go ahead. Yeah, well, Brian, like we just said, you know, we're talking about Joe Biden here, right? He's not an original thinker. It's not like he came up with this scheme of how you, you know, send the stuff that you don't want anyone looking at by a fake name. This is this was a practice at the Obama administration, so much so that when Obama got got caught doing it, uh, their press officer got up in front of the press and said, well, you know, obviously these are very busy people who have secure, secure jobs. Obviously, they need to have pseudonymous emails. So isn't that obvious? It's obvious. Right. And in the meantime, I'm sitting there thinking it's not so obvious when you have a Freedom of Information Act and other government record-keeping requirements precisely because we're supposed to have a public record of what these people do on public time. Uh, so it was never obvious to anybody who actually cares about the rule of law, but this was what they did in the Obama administration. And, Brian, I would point out there are at least 22 emails between Obama and Hillary Clinton over Hillary's homebrew server meaning Obama knew exactly that he was dealing with Hillary on an email that was not part of the government system. And rather than turn them over, uh, what, the, what Obama did was seal them purportedly under the Presidential Records Act, uh, uh, invoking executive privilege. And the press said, oh, okay, well, I'm sure there's nothing interesting in those emails. So, uh, no, no, we don't want to report that. That's not much of a story. And here we are how many years later? 
uh, and everybody's just forgotten it. The, the reason I wrote the column is because I thought maybe we should remember it. How about this? Uh, you believe that they're classified and that they weren't going to go any further and she would never be indicted because of these communications with President Obama. He made sure of it, right? Yeah, if, the, if Hillary had been indicted, then part of her defense would have been that Obama did it too. Obama communicated over, you know, knowingly communicated over uh, unsecure networks because he did it with Hillary. And that would have been a big part of her defense, and everybody knew that. So, you know, obviously there was – I mean, that's not – I don't think that's the only reason that they didn't prosecute Hillary, but it would have been a very embarrassing case for Obama. And 5,400 communications between Biden and Hunter, all right? And I'm wondering what's taken so long, and outside an impeachment inquiry, is there a way to get these emails to the, to the, uh, the House committee that's investigating this? Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, here we are. This is 2023. The emails between Obama and Hillary must be 10 years old, probably. Right. right. And what about never, what about Hunter and never seen. Hunter and Joe? I, I think we're a lot more likely to get stuff via Hunter's uh, laptop, which we're you know obviously still finding stuff out from. And I think Comer's doing a great job holding their feet to the fire at the National Archives. But the question's going to be. Can you gin up enough political pressure that the National Archives, which is obviously working in tandem with with uh, with the Biden administration? I mean, we saw that during the Trump investigations. Um, can you put their feet to the fire enough that they think that they need to cooperate, which means you got to be ready to hold people in contempt and potentially impeach people? And it depends on whether they're going to be able to make enough of a think about this. And you worry that there's so many things going on in the country. Brian, are you going to be able to get people's Mm. attention on this enough? Lastly, can you believe even our national librarians are political? I mean, the archives (laughs) are not only turning on Trump, uh, giving all types of leeway to Obama and his library, but they're refusing to cooperate with Republicans in the House. We can't get librarians, to be honest. Right. And and how how did the Trump case become a case, the Mar-a-Lago case. I mean, I'm not defending what Trump did on the Mar-a-Lago case, but the reason there is one is because the National Archives thought it was duty-bound to alert the Justice Department that that, uh, that uh, Trump had been hoarding classified documents. So you wonder why is it that, um, you know, Trump gets treated one way by the archives and the Bidens get treated a different way. But that's kind of what we see across the board, right? He's a great writer and a great lawyer. Andy McCarthy, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. You got it. 21 minutes after the hour. So listen, we come back. I'll be able to squeeze in some calls. 1-866-408-7669. I can tell a lot of you listening on the podcast. I get a lot of emails after the show, too. So during the show, send it out to me, briankillme.com. Just click on comments. It'll come right to me. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Let me explain to the press. I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board. But they keep telling me because this has to be 10 days or something, I got to keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it on when I walked in. <clears throat> it's just outrageous. He acts like he's sneaking ice cream. When they torture us with their, <clears throat> excuse me, they torture us with their protocols for two and a half years. Say it's our patriotic duty to wear a mask. And his wife, who has been boosted twice and got two, uh, two vaccinations, and now has got the COVID for the second time. And don't tell me she sees more people than we do. I don't. And just if you commute every day into any area, we, we, they see as many people as we do. And they're getting it nonstop, both of them. So they get it. They do want us to wear a mask. They got third graders in Maryland wearing a mask. They got the University of Michigan wearing a mask. They have COVID, they've have all these protocols. And now he mocks it by walking out without a mask. You just wait. If these variants heats, if this variant heats up and people start getting it, by the way, highly, it's survivable. No one's dying from it. Kids aren't suffering from it. It's called, how bad do you feel when a kid has stomach virus? You wish they didn't, but they get over it. You don't destroy a whole school year. And he's mocking it. It's crazy. This circus led by Anthony Fauci, who sees an opportunity to come back in the public eye and oddly thinks he's welcome because people like CNN and MSNBC invite him back. Nobody listens to him. And Joe Biden just making a mockery of the whole thing. So here is uh, Dr. Scott Atlas last night talking about Fauci recommending we wear a mask and pretending as if it does. uh, They work not knowing that the study was just done that shows they don't work. Cut 17. We have a crisis of both competence and ethical behavior here. I mean, to hear Fauci in Burks, who presided over the biggest healthcare fiasco in a century with completely wrong information, spewing out misinformation and pseudoscience. Here's the facts. Number one, there is no deadly pandemic present. There hasn't been now for a couple of years. Number two, there is no public health emergency. So therefore, there should never be an emergency use authorization for some kind of experimental drug, which we're about to see. Uh, I agree. Scott Atlas was right the whole time. President Trump was right to bring him in. And I'll play this a little bit later, but President Trump was on with uh, UU it. And he said, you know, uh, Governor Sanchez said to me, I should have fired uh, Fauci. He goes, well, can't fire him. He's a civil servant, number one. Number two is he became a minor advisor to me. I wasn't listening to him. And that was true. And you know who agrees with that? Anthony Fauci said that, you know, in, with the Trump administration, I wasn't being listened to. I wasn't being adhered to. I was being dismissed. And Trump said as much. And then in he comes and Joe Biden says, according to a book written, that he said, you know, Anthony Fauci, you should really sit in the vice president's chair. That's how powerful he was. So I don't think that I think there's a dry hole going after Trump there. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think it kind of shows that Joe Biden is exactly the guy we thought he was uh, on the Afghan withdrawal, the disastrous 
Afghan withdrawal. He thought he knew more than anybody else about it because he had been on Senate committees uh, for a million years. He micromanaged it, uh, probably made things worse, and then ta didn't, wouldn't take any blame at all for it. I mean, that's kind of what we thought about what was going on. And there's, there's one more thing. He occasionally has told aides that he feels tired. Well, we can actually see that. I mean, if he told his aides, you know, I think I'm just too old for this job. Now, that would be news. Uh, but I think we're really learning basically what we already knew about Joe Biden. Joining us now, that was Byron York. Joining us now, Chad Robichaux, a former recon officer of the Marine, co-founder of Save Our Allies and the author of Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Save Thousands. Chad, I thought about you and others like you when the revelations came out about this all-access writer who was inside the administration when they made the decision to rapidly pull out. And the military said, leave 2,500 and hold on to uh, certain air bases. He just said, no, pull out. And then to find out he didn't put the work in to do his research before he came to that conclusion. What are your thoughts about this? Well, you know, um, the the gentleman you just had uh, that we just heard. Byron uh, I think, yeah, I think being very kind uh, because uh, I don't think this was incompetence. Uh, I, I think anybody really looks at this was an incompetence. This was not somebody that just is getting too old. This was a malicious and deliberate decision uh, against the advice of the generals, against the advice of all the intelligence uh, committee leaders, against the advice of the 12 diplomats on the ground, which is the reason we have diplomats on the ground who sent the dissent cable out, by the way, that we couldn't even get until we had to you know, subpoena or hold, you know, threaten Secretary Blinken with contempt to get that information. Tell us about the dissent cable and what that means for everybody. So the dissent cable is essentially like when we have, you know, states interest around the world, we have State Department officials on the ground in the environment. And there are eyes and ears to let uh, people know the political environment, the, the uh, you know, military environment on the ground to say, you know, what we should do. And that's the eyes and ears of the White House and the State Department. Uh, and they are the official people as diplomats, they're official people to write back and say, you give advice. And they show 12 of them, 12 out of 12, by the way, uh, right back and say, do not do this. This is a mistake. Kabul's going to fall. And, uh, and the president chose to do it anyway. Secretary Blanken would have been that, – that's who they would report to. So uh, they – Secretary Blanken had tried to hide this from our House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, they had to subpoena it, and not until like maybe two months ago we got it, and then actually had to hold uh, – threaten to hold – Secretary Blinken in contempt for giving this information to protect uh, the White House. Um, the American people need to need to know that you know the president of the United States went against the advice of all these people to make this decision. So I don't believe this was incompetence. If he was incompetent, he was still informed and he made decisions knowingly removed our military uh, from the most strategic place in the globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China, which is Bagram Air Force Base. Made the decision to do that. Under this lie that America was in a 20-year war, endless war, we had to get out. We had 2,500 troops there. We have, I can name 12 places right now, Brian, and we have 2,500 troops around the world. Uh, they're just not popular in the news, as Afghanistan was. These military contingents around the world don't keep us in wars. They prevent us from being in wars by bringing stability in different regions around the world. The best example is you know, we have in, in South Korea, we have 35,000 troops there, 35,000, not 3,500, 35,000 troops since uh, the Korean War. Since the 50s. Yes, yeah, that keeps the North Koreans from coming across the 38th parallel and starting a war. These contingents work. We have 80,000 troops in Japan and 
since World War II and, and 40,000 in Germany since World War II. So when you talk about 2,500 troops exiting this long-term war, the U.S. military was not fighting the Taliban. They were supporting it by the Afghan National Army. The entire international community was participating in a, in a, in a miraculous effort that actually worked to keep the Taliban at bay. No one was advised of this. The international partners wasn't advised of this. The Afghan government we spent 20 years putting in place wasn't advised of this. The only people the White House worked with was the Taliban and gave away the most strategic place in the globe, not to the Taliban, but to our enemies, to China. China uh, occupies Bagram Air Force Base now. Iran's there. Pakistan ISI there. Our enemies are there. $85 billion in equipment was left behind. We left behind Americans. We left behind almost 100,000 allies, wartime allies. Uh, we left behind 40 million Afghans and 20 million women and little girls to be sexually enslaved. This was not incompetence. This was a deliberate uh, decision that was made for reasons and motivations we don't know. I can tell you who benefited from it, China. Absolutely. Uh, and they're getting the rare earth from Afghanistan. I'm talking to Chad Robichaud. Chad, a couple of things. Number one, he lied when he said nobody recommended or predicted that they would fall this fast. That's not true. And by the way, I found out on a pretty good source that General Milley and everybody, who I'm not a fan of, I've never met, but just by actions, papered this whole thing. He's, this is my recommendation, sir. I'm putting it in writing. There it is. I'm holding on to a copy, sir. They all did it because even though they didn't resign, then they should have. McKenzie and company should have resigned. And that would have stopped this political animal from doing it because he would say, wait a second. Milley turned on Trump. If he turns on me, people know he's right. Because you can't just say he's a Trump general. So Milley putting his four stars down would have stopped Chad Ravishow for having to form Save Our Allies and spend all his good time and money and risk his life to get all of his friends, uh, Americans and allies out of there. So they were going to leave 2,500. Plus, if you leave the NATO troops, there was no clamoring to get out. And the Taliban were absolutely I wasn't for that Doha agreement. I don't think it was no. done. Uh, Ambassador Kalazad was not cutting a good deal. I agree with that. But there's no way they would have they would have signed off on this. No, the Doha agreement was – I mean, look, the Doha agreement says that the Taliban won't allow terrorism to happen there. They are a terrorist organization. Uh, the thing is null and void from, from, the, you know, from the moment it's, it's signed. And, uh, and you're right. Like we – I think the mistake President Trump made – was President Trump in 2018 when he dropped that mob? He should have declared, he should have declared a victory, declared the war over, and 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 shifted to support and advisory role officially, which we were actually doing. Yes, Just changed the name of it for the American public and the, and the optics of it, and and we were doing a support and advisory role. The international community is leading this, hand bogging Air Force Base over to the international community, like he probably would have in a second term, uh, and and it would have been over. I think. President Trump should have left the, you know, ended his term with that. Uh, but it's what, it's the same action that President Biden could have could have taken, as saying, "Hey, we're ending this war, and uh, but we're going to hand the internet, the Bagram Air Force Base international to the international community. Yes, and we'll see, we'll keep a contingent and participate there with the rest of the world, and, just and, like we do in Africa, right. just like we do everywhere else in the world. And Chad, it's so easy to rationalize because you could say, "Listen, for the last twenty years, we've given people a shot at freedom and opportunity." For women, especially, and the university system, the the benefits were enormous, and they knew what the Taliban would bring back to the caveman era. They are now women are all in in thick burkas. They're not allowed to do anything. Uh, it is back to the uh, to the Stone Age for Afghanistan, and the humiliation 
that America felt after the way you guys fought and adapted to the battlefield and the people you trained is so not worthy of your generation of warfighters. And it got us Ukraine and the invasion that we saw. And we and, were in Ukraine because, because of the decision in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all related, and that's why I keep bringing it up, and that's why it's so important for these books and these revelations to come forward because this can't happen again. The president said this will not be Saigon. Yes, it is. It's worse than Saigon. It, it was worse than Saigon. It was worse than Saigon, and, and not only is it worse than Saigon on the the way America looks, but but on a national security from a national security perspective, it, it's, it's much worse. There's much more implications. Right. On, on the risk to Americans' uh, everyday lives because of the terrorism aspect. We didn't see that coming out of Vietnam. The terrorism aspect, you know, when you talk about uh, al-Zakari, you know, they're like high-fiving and they killed al-Zakari in, in Kabul. What's he doing in Kabul? We created a hotbed for terrorism. Like ISIS should not be uh, – ISIS leaders should not be sitting on a balcony in Kabul comfortable and free. Yeah. Uh, we created that. So I, I have – and this is I'm how nuts it is, but- Chad. They took a bow on that. You should be embarrassed. Zawahiri, who took over for bin Laden, hanging out in a balcony, gets taken out. We go, see? What are you talking about? That's exactly what we tried to prevent for 20 years. So I want you to hear. So we know about the 13 who died on Abbey Gate and many more that were injured and hundreds of Afghans were killed. So I want you to hear after Mark Milley says we deserve to give these Gold Star families answers they're looking for. This is what Herman Lopez said. In his note, General Milley mentions that he apologizes for any lack of information provided during these briefings that we all had in our homes. The issue is not the briefing. The issue is not the lack of information during those briefings. It is the disregard of intelligence. It is the disregard of planning. That's what you should be apologizing for. Mark Schmidt, uh, Schmitz, a Gold Star parent, same day. Well, I stood there on the tarmac watching you check your watch. Over and over again. All I wanted to do was shout out, it's 2-30, But out of respect to the other grieving families, I bit my tongue once again. Well, as you could probably tell by now, I'm done biting my tongue. You, sir, stole their lives, their futures, their dreams, and have ripped apart 13 families. You cannot even man up and admit that. You, sir, gave us all the title Gold Star Family. You, sir, discredit honor and integrity. Your thoughts? I mean, it, it's heartbreaking. Look, the, those 13 service members did not have to die, and not just because of the withdrawal. Uh, it did not have to die because politically the White House took the NEO operation, a non-combatant evacuation operation, away from the Department of Defense where it belongs and gave it to the State Department for political reasons and, and optics for the White House. That, and it, that set into motion a scenario that cost those 13 service members their lives and jeopardized every Marine, airman, sailor. Uh, soldier that was that was that was there. Everyone, including the Americans that he's responsible for outside the wire, uh, by giving that neo operation to, to to the State Department. And then when you have uh, when you have Marine snipers watching uh, a suicide bomber in a gate and asking to engage, the reason they wasn't given the permission to engage because the military didn't have the authority because the White House gave the gave the authority to the State Department, who has no idea how to handle something like this. And they were drinking uh, the night before the evacuation as if celebrating their end, uh, and they were I, I slow to come this. out. I don't know if people know this, uh, and, and I wrote it in, in my book, Saving Disease, because I thought it was so important uh, for people to know. The, 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 our troops on the ground were forced to clean the toilets, to clean uh, Taliban offensive graffiti, 
off of the airport to hand it over to the Taliban. That's the last thing our troops did after 20 years of war was not only hand it over to the enemy, but they wanted to hand it over with dignity to, and I don't mean a dignity in a good way, to our enemy by cleaning, by making our troops clean toilets and, and, and clean off graffiti to hand it over to the Taliban. It's disgusting. And, uh, and I, I sure hope these Bosar families use their voice and position to keep pushing uh, for accountability because they deserve accountability. I hear you, uh, Chad, and I, I did not know that's the first time I'm hearing that. Chad Robichaud, former recon Marine, co-founder of Save Our Allies. He, like me, and hopefully you, are not letting the president forget what he did to America and our national profile and the great war fighters over the last 20 years who deserve a better fate in Afghanistan. Uh, Chad Robichaud, thanks so much. Always great to be on, Brian. God bless, man. You got it. one 408 7669 I'll come back. I'll take your calls. Not only of what we just discussed— the Fauci Follies, are you willing to mask up if you have to? Do you think your school and your work is going to make you do it? Uh, the border busted. And guess who the mayor of New York is blaming? Trump. Is that really going to fly with independents and undecideds? Back in a moment. Honest commentary. Unique opinions. No agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. So you can take a booster every three weeks, three months, or every Monday morning. You can wear an N95 tightly fitting mask for three years, or you can live in profound social isolation. None of those strategies are sustainable, and it will not impact the fact that this is a contagious virus. That is Dr. Marty McCary, who's saying the same thing he said since 2020. Unfortunately, people weren't listening. They have found out, looking at Facebook and Twitter now, in those Twitter files, that there was about a dozen people, 20 people, putting out all this information that they wanted to put out that weren't backed up by science and fact and were taking down people like Marty McCary and others who were putting out things that they didn't want out there. And they said it was their patriotic duty to do so. And now they're coming back with mass mandates and recommendations. We're not mandating, but we're recommending. And none of the people in these Democratic states are going to do that. My hope is the most liberal man or woman will understand it's not in your interest. You parents out there who have a fourth grader who are told a couple of uh, little Sally and Billy tested positive. So now your kid has to go to school in a mask. You homeschool those kids and move them out of that school if it's at all possible because they are going to be nothing but a train wreck and plague your kid and give that kid all type of psychological challenges, thinking they have to run from every disease, every would-be stomach virus, every opportunity, every situation that might be somewhat unsettling. It's just a terrible message. And Anthony Fauci is putting it out there again because all this guy cares about is fame. Look, I don't really encourage this, but yet I encourage it. There's a Netflix special, I think it is, on Anthony Fauci, or a PBS special. And you just see him. They follow him around for weeks. You see this ego out of control, like Reggie Jackson in the 70s. You know, uh, every the, the most out of control ego you can imagine. Here he is, coming off uh, malleable and nice and telling people this and that. He's the oracle of wisdom, contradicting himself constantly and just loving to see himself on camera. Uh, I find it just nuts. So Andrew Cox just writes me on BrianKillMe.com and writes this. Observation about Biden and mass. I figured the Biden strategy out. 
He'll elevate the fear of COVID-19 to the point where he has to insist that there were no debates, no campaign tours. It's not going to work. The sitting president is sitting in the basement strategy, worked for 2020. He's going to try to do it again. He won't be able to pull it off. He won't. What he's going to try to do maybe is say, well, Trump's on trial. I'm a little worried about that Ukraine or the economy. I got to work. I'm just going to stay in the Oval Office and work. Patrick Ryan writes that the president uh, reports that the president's got to put a billion to Ukraine. I wonder which prosecutor has to be fired before they get the money. I get it. You're talking about Prosecutor Shokin, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, who they said if you didn't fire him, you don't get a billion dollars. And this ridiculous vice president bragged about it at the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, Dennis writes me and says, my two favorite guests of yours, Brian, are Michael Goodwin and Jonathan Turley. I appreciate you always having them on and how objective they are. True. Here is uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre talking about the president's ridiculous statement that he helped. Don't tell anybody, but I wasn't wearing a mask walking out there, even though the first lady tested positive. Cut 14. The president took off his mask, uh, as I said he would, to deliver incredibly powerful remarks about this captain, Captain Taylor, uh, and what he did in service to our our nation. And he wanted to honor uh, the captain. And for a brief time afterwards, he also uh, didn't have his mask on, as you just laid out. So they want us to believe that he left this gold, uh, this this, uh, Medal of Honor winner ceremony early, as soon as he gave over, to save uh, this 80-year-old who's getting this award from being exposed to COVID, which his wife has. If you see this, everybody knows he left because he is not all there. He is totally confused all the time, and they refuse to give him a body man like Reggie Love was for Barack Obama. Just to lead him out. Hey, Mr. President, say it's security. Say it's Secret Service. Yeah, I'm a little worried about it. You know, it's dangerous times. They don't do it. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. I'm heard around the country, around the world. So glad you're here. It's going to be a big hour uh, coming your way. Uh, we have an author with us. It's guaranteed to make your life better if you pay attention. And I know you will. His name is John Gordon. He's multi. He's been a bestseller everywhere he goes. And every time he publishes a book, this new one's out. I'm going to have more on it on One Nation over the weekend. It's called The One Truth. Elevate your mind. Unlock your power. Heal your soul. He deals with a lot of professional athletes. I get it. But he also deals with a lot of parents who have teens that are suicidal, others that are suffering from depression. So a lot of these universal truths that he had found out and researched, he speaks about. And it's in this book. You will love it. And Mark Thiessen standing by. Uh, he's chief, uh, former speechwriter for Bush, Fox News contributor, Washington Post columnist. And, man, if you want insight on what's happening political, you go to him. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This issue will destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. The migrants, this is a national problem. It should be handled by the national government. But let's be clear, this mess is Trump like Republicans mess. Trump Republicans created this mess. Are you nuts? You mean the guy that repurposed defense spending to build a wall that they wouldn't finance 
The one that put tariffs or threatened tariffs on Mexico and they put 20,000 Marines on their southern border. That Donald Trump. What an embarrassment. Mayor Adams has 100,000 illegal immigrants in his state, in his city. 20,000 are going to school on day one today. And we got nowhere to put them and no translators to help them. Number two. I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board. But they keep telling me because this has to be 10 days or something, I got to keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it on when I walked in. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm befuddled on this clown. He sits there and tortures us with two years of mandates and demands. It's our patriotic duty to wear a mask. He's told to wear a mask and he mocks his own CDC. The Fauci follies are back from mass to boosters to child abuse in our schools. We have seen this movie before. And I can quote the who now. We will not get fooled again. Number one. I think the message is simple. They're going to throw the book at him on a gun charge that they were previously going to let him actually work off in a couple years. Harry Littman, former federal prosecutor, Hunter indicted. Yes, within two weeks. The question is, is this just about a crackhead lying about his gun application? Why don't we focus on the foreign business dealings? Why? Because maybe it links right to Joe. The White House is desperate to block it all. We have the latest. Mark, how significant is it that Hunter is about to be indicted, do you think? Well, significant. The son of the president is about to be indicted in, in, while he's a sitting president. I mean, I don't think, you know, talk about first. I don't, know if, I don't know if that's ever happened in our history before. But he's being indicted for the wrong thing. I agree. You know, I mean, it, great. Okay, you know, let's uh, yeah, sure gun charge. Absolutely, we should say, you know, for an administration that takes gun violence very seriously, uh, you know, then uh, then of course they should he uh, he should have been charged. But of course, they offered him a plea on this before, so you know, it's it's it, it's it's not like this was their first choice. But this is this is like a sideshow. You know, I want to know, you know, I want to know about uh, his business dealings in in China. I want to know with his business dealings with the Chinese Communist Party. I want to know where that, you know, what was their pay for play? Remember how everyone was running around, you know, talking about Ukraine pay for play? You know, that that, I mean, this is we need to get to the bottom of of the hundred of the Biden, you know, crime family's business dealings. So I want you to hear what James Comer had to say about this uh, and the problems that he's having getting everything, not only from the White House lawyers, even from our national librarians, the National Archives, even they are political. Cut to. Hunter Biden has been in trouble for a long time. Burisma was a corrupt energy company. That's why Shokin, the Ukrainian prosecutor, was investigating him for the first place. Remember, Shokin even seized some assets from the owners of Burisma in other countries. This is a corrupt entity. The press was picking up on this. And the Biden, Hunter's legal team, Hunter's PR people, whoever they were, were communicating back and forth with Joe Biden, who was vice president, so they could be an official government position on this, an official government statement to the press corps, uh, reassuring everyone that everything was fine and, and you know everything was on the up and up. This is further coordination between Hunter Biden and the federal government and Joe Biden. Is he right? Yeah. So here's here's the thing that just, you know, just think about this. If you took all the facts relating to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, all the, you know, the the, uh, you know, what they they dismiss as being, you know, just uh, sort of uh, not 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 enough evidence to suggest that that Joe Biden did anything wrong or received any money of that. You take all the same facts 
and change the names from Biden to Trump, we would have a multi-million dollar, multi-year special prosecutor investigation. Congress, you have members of, you know, I mean, the Democratic members of Congress would be saying that that Trump was in, uh, was making money and is in the pocket. They'd be talking about impeachment, all of this stuff. It's 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 just stunning how they, you know, they just flip a switch. <laughs> if 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 it's their guy, nothing to see here. If it's our guy, it's like you know, let's 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 uh, indict him. <laughs> it's it's just you know, they they, they don't even make a pretense right. of being objective. And let me just tell you, I, I can tell you personally that I walked into Trump Tower there in a year and a half in to the administration and Eric was busy and Don was walking around and I was there to see, I think, Don. And Don Jr. And I go, well, what's going on? How are you staying busy? He goes, I'm not. I go, why? He goes, because my job was international and I'm not allowed to do anything with other countries. This is between me and him. There's no cameras. He just yeah. says, I'm not allowed to do anything with any other countries. I go, wow. He goes, so I'm like hamstrung. And he was frustrated, but it was I. Yeah. I just never thought to myself, okay, I didn't realize that. I, you know, I should have. I thought you could deconflict and just be transparent. He's like, no. They said, don't risk it. That's a little bit different than what we're witnessing now. So go to show you. David Axelrod was asked about this indictment last night with Anderson Cooper, and listen to what he said first. Cut eight. President wasn't involved with this very clearly. This was something that uh, involved something that Hunter Biden did on his own uh, and involved his own drug addiction and his own uh, misrepresentation. Uh, but it, it fuels what the Republicans in Congress are trying to fan, which is uh, the idea that Hunter Biden is involved in a bunch of illicit activities and uh, they want to try and link the president to these and this this will be a log on that fire even though he has nothing to do with this he knows better i mean does he does they all he know better they all know better and look if we had a email from one of the trump kid saying yeah i'm doing all this uh, all this uh, stuff and i got to give pop uh, half the money <laughs> That would be this one. They'd it? be running around waving it on TV and seeing it like smoking gun, smoking gun. I mean, just you know, it's it's just, and this is why you know the, you wonder why January six takes place. And I'm going to draw a connection here, right? So you know, the the media lies, and they and they and their their bias is so obvious, and they push the, the Russia collusion conspiracy theory for, for years, and it turns out not to be true. And they push the, uh, the Ukraine impeachment. They push all these things. They push all these lies about COVID. And then Trump comes and says the election was stolen. And they wonder why people believe him and don't believe them when they say it wasn't. It's like, it's like the point. boy who cried wolf, right? You know, it's, uh, you, you lie enough that when you finally tell the truth, no one believes you. And so if, if the media had actually been objective for, for the four years of the Trump presidency, maybe Trump couldn't have gotten away with saying that the election was stolen when it wasn't. Because maybe the, 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 the people would look at the media and say, you know what, they're not in the tank for the other side. Maybe we should listen to these stories. Maybe we should look at them for objective analysis. But they have no objectivity. And so as a result, we, have no, we no longer have any neutral arbiter of fact in, when it comes to anything in, in our political life. Because nobody trusts the media. There's nobody that, that they, there's nobody that both the left and the right trust to say, okay, let's work from a common set of facts about X, whatever it is. No one does that. And so as a result, we're, we are 
our entire politics is in tumult because then no one that no one is operating from the same set of objective facts anymore on anything. Yeah, I'm, and the thing is, we're not talking about uh, drilling in Alaska, which is another huge subject. He decides to shut off drilling in Alaska, something that was passed by the last Congress on the same day that Russia and Saudi Arabia, everybody's cutting production while we're watching gas prices go up. That's why people say, well, of course this guy's not going to get elected. Everything he does is wrong. I mean, he's trying to green the economy with money we don't have in an economy that's double the deficit while he stands up on the stump and says, I cut the deficit while he doubled the deficit. So people go, I don't know, you know, really, I'm busy. I got three jobs and three kids. I'm supposed to find I'm supposed to fact check this guy who I'm just going to give up on everybody. Yeah, so here, here's the thing. So if you look at Joe Biden, the fi- if you go to the 538 page, they've got the polling for every- comparing Biden to every president going back to the end of World War II to Harry Truman, which is the modern polling era. And Joe Biden is the most unpopular president in the- since World War II, except for two, Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. Right. So, yes. You look at the facts of this of the matter. You look at Biden's age. You look at Biden's obvious mental decline. You look at all of these things and say, there is no way this guy can get reelected. Yeah, he can. <laughs> because if you force people to choose between two people they disapprove of, then you might end up they might not end up choosing your guy. Yeah. And so, and so the, the party. But the only thing is, this is the, the difference. Party, and I know I'm speaking to the choir here. You have one guy where the press is covering for you and your approval rating still is terrible. And then you have other guy who the press has got it out for you and your approval is the same. So, yeah, but but that that makes that means that Joe Biden has the advantage because he has the press in in the tank for him. And again, this election is not going to be decided by Republicans or Democrats. It's going to be decided by a couple hundred thousand swing voters in five states. And they're the only ones that matter in this discussion. And and so you have to look at. What, you, what we need to drill down on is the voters who disapprove of both Biden and Trump, who will they go for? And I don't know the answer to that. The, 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 the Wall Street Journal poll in April found that, that Biden won those voters by 39 points. Um, maybe that'll change as he becomes more incompetent and more mentally addled as we go forward. Who knows? But the part that the, the clear fact is that the that seven in 10 Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. They say that. So the party that figures that out and puts somebody else up is going to have an advantage going in. I know. I, I just feel, uh, Mark, I think, you should, I, I think you should recognize the fact that I do think things are changing since we first started having this conversation in 2022 when it was pretty clear that Trump uh, was going to run and who was going to be in the field. I do sense there's What's a lot changing? of that, like the Liz Cheney's of the world, like the never Trumpers will be never Trumpers. But the I, I hope I, not I again, not, Trumper. Huh? Yeah. But I, but, I, but I'm just they saying the people that said I'd rather not have Trump are going, you know what? I, I'll take his craziness and his policies. And I think maybe. that Nikki Haley is emerging right now. Governor DeSantis yeah. maybe stopped the bleeding. But and they'll, they'll probably be on the states together in October. But I think that at this point, I think Mark Thiessen has to be open to I think more people are open to President Trump. And they also Nikki Haley's done a great job on this. Letting you know that a vote for Biden is a vote for this woman. Cut 30. I'm answering your hypothetical. Um, But Joe Biden's going to be fine. So that is not going to come to fruition. But let us also understand that every vice president 
every vice president understands that when they take the oath, that they must be very clear about the responsibility they may have to take over the job of being president. I am no different. That's who's going to be your president. Yeah, 100 percent. Look, Joe Biden is a, a, is going to be would be 86 at the end of a second term. If you just look at the Social Security Administration actuarial tables, I actually went and dug them up. The he he has a there's a 60 percent chance that he won't live to the end of his second term, much less be mentally competent throughout it. That the, the average American male, only 42 percent make it to the age of 85. So he'd be 86 at the end of his term. He's probably not going to make it. And he certainly is not going to be making it as mentally competent. Of course, Kamala Harris will be president at some point during the second Biden term. So we're without a doubt we're running against. It. In fact, Biden. I mean, Trump. Who if he's if Trump is the nominee, whoever the Republican nominee is, he should step in and do the vice presidential debate as well. <laughs> because because I, you know, say, you know it's true? okay. That's I'll, funny. I'll do it. I'll that's do hysterical. all the debates. Right. I mean, he should because that's you know that's that's a real matchup. You know. But again, it's not whether I'm open to Trump. Brian, it's not whether you're open to Trump. It's not whether, uh, you know, it, oh, I know it's, it's not me and you. I, no, no, I want to make that clear. It's I'm not talking about me and you. Voters are. And I think that Donald Trump was one of the greatest presidents in my lifetime in terms of policies. I'm, I've def- I, I've spent more spilled more ink defending Donald Trump on the on on the web pages of The Washington Post than any human being alive. I, 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 I could I could spend an entire segment with you on this show going through his policies and and one by one, showing how they were they were among the best conservative policies of any president in my lifetime. That's not the issue. The issue is whether Donald Trump has his behavior since the since losing the election has so driven away swing voters that they are that they will they, they will vote for a mentally addled 86 year old with a drool cup instead of him. And there are a number of people, a number of Americans in those key swing states whose answer is, yeah, yes, I will. And that's what we have to deal with. And would we be any other Republican will crush Joe Biden? I know, but not in the stats. Head to head, DeSantis loses by six. Trump's in a dead heat. Now, we can't take these as ironclad. That doesn't matter. Those polls don't matter because people don't know DeSantis yet. Trump is a known commodity. Everyone has made their decision and their judgment on him. He's not he's not winning over anybody or driving Mm. away anybody that. I'm not talking about me and you. I'm just saying, Mark, be open that something's changing. I just believe something's changing. Yeah, maybe. And and you know, I felt felt differently three, three, four months ago. But uh, show me the swing. Show me the poll of swings with swing voters who who, who support that. All right. Tell me when your birthday is. I will get it ready. I'll surprise you. Excellent. Back in a moment. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Now, I think that obstruction charge is going to get the trial, Mr. President. I think that... Okay, if you do, and they ask you on on the stand, did you order anyone to move boxes? How will you answer? I'm not answering that question for you, but I'm totally covered under the law. Donald Trump talking to you you, uh, yesterday. Uh, That was smart. For him not to answer that question, by the way, because uh, he's got to be. That's the problem with being a candidate. You have four open cases. 
and maybe two civil cases, one for your business and then one with this defamation trial. And who knows what you could say in these interviews when you're asked. And it sounds like you're ducking the question. Now, if you're going to go on in a hostile outlet, all CNN will ever answer is all about your questions. And Trump's confidence is through the roof. He'll feel as though I can get through it. But right there shows me that someone's talked to him and got him worried enough to say, I'm not going to answer that for you. But there was this so-called number four, uh, the witness number four that flipped on Trump, that worked on the tech side at Mar-a-Lago, that evidently is going to tell a story on his aide, Nada, and him. Not going to be helpful. We'll see. President's got to have good attorneys because they're certainly under attack. John Gordon next. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Michael Jordan played 15 years, won six championship. The other nine years was a failure. That's what you're telling me. I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Okay, exactly. So why are you asking me that question? It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. You know, there's good days, bad days. Some days, some days you are able to uh, be successful. Some days you're not. Some days it's your turn. Some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Some other other people's going to win. And this year, somebody else is going to win. Similar as that. We're going to come back next year, try to be better, try to build good habits. Try to um, play better, not have a 10-day stretch with uh, playing bad basketball. You know, and hopefully we can win a championship. The years from 1971 to 2021 that we didn't win a championship, it was 50 years of failures. No, it was not. So it's how you vision things when it doesn't end up with you holding the trophy over your head. That was when Giannis, one of the best athletes in the world, talking about being the number one seed in the Eastern Conference and losing in the first round to Miami. Obviously, a huge upset. And that was his take. And he got criticism for it. They go, oh, a winner never should be satisfied. And it's not a failure. It is a failure if you don't win it all. I love this attitude because I have news for you. Most of us don't win it all. So we're going to walk around feeling like losers. It doesn't work for me. And I imagine it doesn't work for my next guest. who You might be watching on the stream now. John Gordon, best-selling author, author of a brand new book called The One Truth. Elevate your mind, unlock your power, and heal your soul. And, John, you do the bulk of your work with a lot of athletes, right, of all different levels. And for a lot of NFL players, and they're on the back of your book. What do you think of what Giannis's take was in that huge upset? I would say that failure doesn't define you. It refines you to be all that you're meant to be, to learn, to grow. So I do believe you do fail. I mean, you're going to fail. Right. You're not going to live up to your potential. You're not going to reach your goals. You're not going to perform as high as you want to perform. But in those moments, what could you learn from this? How can you grow from this? How can you get better because of it? So everything is a learning opportunity and a growth opportunity. You don't want that failure to define you, though, and and get down and think something's wrong with you, something's broken. Maybe you just didn't play well. Maybe you didn't perform. Maybe you didn't have the right mindset that day. Okay, how can I come back and perform at a higher level? Michael Jordan, we know it made him so great. I talked to John Paxson. I spoke to the Bulls during training camp this year, and John was there. I said, hey, what made Michael so great? Because I really believed it wasn't the hating of losing. It wasn't the fear of losing. It was the love of competition. Every time he was playing you, he was battling you. He was competing against you. He wanted to destroy you. He wasn't worried about failure. He wasn't worried about making a mistake. Fear of failure is not going to work for you. No, it's not going to work for you. It actually paralyzes you. Fear divides. It makes you feel powerless. Love unites. Love creates 
Connection. Connection creates clarity. Clarity creates confidence. Confidence creates courage. So the more you're focused on loving the moment, loving the competition, loving the battle, then you will perform at your highest level. Now, listen, on the outside, if you're not an athlete, you're not coaching, I get it. This is not really about that. It's just the easiest examples of sports because you get winning, losing, competition, starting, bench. It's just an easy way to get a sense of life. Uh, so hopefully you'll take that from it. Give an example from you in your introduction. You talk about being a little league pitcher. And you're on the mound, and you hit a batter, and your dad's a coach, and his dad, your dad's furious at you, and you hit the next batter, and you hit the next batter. And the next one, I think, got a hit, and you hit the last one, and they finally pulled you out. And that stuck with the little kid, John Gordon. It stuck with you throughout your college career. You ended up being a college lacrosse player, Division One, but you just feared not being successful, and it almost ruined the experience for you. It really did wreck me in, in many ways. And when I look back on my time as a, as a college athlete— I never fully enjoyed it. I was so worried about making a mistake. Being not, benched. Being benched, not playing well, not being perfect. I was defining myself by my outcome and by my performance. And that's the worst thing you can do as an athlete or as a person. So often in life, we define ourselves by our accomplishments, by our jobs, by our school, by our grades. And so there's a lot of kids right now, taking it back to reality, that are struggling right now with their identity. Well, what I realized was that I've been on a quest myself to get better myself and as I want to improve myself because I wish I was better then. I wish I knew then that I know now, but I can't change my past. But you know what? I'm on a quest now to help others get better, which I wish I learned then. And and here's a, an example. You just talk about the inside-out technique and you have two circles in your book and one is full of dots and one is not as many. And the clutter, which gets people distracted and nervous and tense, is what you try to avoid. How in a complicated life, which most of us have, how do we declutter a life and act in a, in a very direct way, a, a stress, uh, less stress way? Yeah, the key is to understand how thoughts work, right? So we have a high state of mind and a low state of mind. So one day you're in traffic, and I was in traffic on the way here, and the traffic really bothers you. Another day you're in the same traffic, and it doesn't. You rise above, you move forward because you're in a high state when it doesn't bother you. In a low state, it really affects you. In a low state, you think the circumstance has power over you. In a high state, you realize you have power over your circumstance. And so what happens is the more thoughts we have, that's clutter. That's a low state. That's a lot of fear, worry, anxiety, chronic stress. So all these thoughts and you are reeling and you have revved up thought. But you really are in traffic and you really could have been late. You could have been late, but it's also your perspective and how you approach it. And even though you're dealing with that circumstance, you could say, you know what? I might be a little late, but at the same time, we'll figure it out somehow, some way. I can't control this moment, but I control how I respond to this moment. And in that high state, yes, you're in the same traffic, but you figure out a way to either get there or to overcome or to deal with the pressure and the circumstance that you're dealing with. Let's look at the pandemic. A lot of people really struggled during the pandemic, but other people didn't struggle. They thrived in the pandemic. Same experience, same event for a lot of people, but your state of mind determined how you respond to that event. Less clutter is a high state. You have a lot of clarity, a lot of focus, a lot of positivity, a lot of optimism, a lot of belief, a lot of courage uh, and confidence. I know Anthony Robbins always would say, what's good about this? Well, what's good about it? I could probably read. Maybe this is the chance to take that online graduate course that I'm doing because I got to stay at home. Uh, what's good about this? Maybe I could get an online business going. They provide that edu uh, the extra income to be able to go on vacation for once. So it's how you look at these situations. And again, back to sports. But you talk about working for the uh, work uh, helping out the Oklahoma Thunder. Yep. And 
one of the best players on the team walks up to you and says, should I want to play, if I got this right, should I want to play at, what's the difference between playing at home and away? Should I, what's better? Right. They asked me what was a bigger impact on the opposing team, home field advantage in baseball or home court advantage in basketball. And this was the head coach and the star player. And what would have a bigger impact? I said neither. When you know the outside has no power over you. And we don't create from the outside, and we always create from the inside out. Your spirit, your work ethic, your passion, your drive, your purpose, your love for the game, you create from the inside out. And once you realize that, it's just noise. It's like Novak Djokovic. When he he hears people booing, he imagines they're cheering. So he's taking the vibration of the sound and giving it new meaning and realizing he could actually create whatever he wants out of that from within and then create the outside from that within – the basketball player said, man, that makes a lot of sense when I said we don't create from the outside and we create from the inside out. He said, that's what I think. He said, 98% of the guys in the league believe in home court advantage. So it affects it. He said, I know it isn't true. So I just go do what I do and play my game. And that's the key. I spoke to Notre Dame lacrosse before they won the national championship this year. I was there for speaking to the Purpose Summit, saw the team was still there, reached out to the coach. He said, come over, say a few words. I told him, you're going to get to the Final Four. Huge crowd. You've never played in front of a crowd like that. A lot of pressure, a lot of expectation. Don't worry about the outside. You just love the battle, love the game, love the moment, and you love playing and let the outcome take care of itself. That's what they did. They won a national championship. Coach was asked after the game, what was the difference? He said, love. We just love the battle. You just won the battle and let the outcome take care of itself. So when kids come up to you and they now have this challenge of Instagram and TikTok, hopefully not TikTok, uh, now Snapchat's a fast growing. So they're they maybe don't have a million friends, right? I saw this stat that one in five people have no best friends, right? And now it's only going to get worse because people are so insular with the phones. So when people are, when teens come up to you or parents come up to you, I'm worried about my teen. They're letting the outside affect them, their self-esteem's through, uh, in the, uh, you know, through the ground, and they really feel they have no self-worth and maybe having suicidal thoughts. How do you get them out of that? Well. I spoke to a 17-year-old last year, and that's what made me write this book, The One Truth. And when I was speaking to him, I said, do you have a lot of thoughts in your head? He said, oh, so many. I said, do they bombard you? Do they attack you? Do they accuse you of not being enough and so forth? He said, all the time. I just want to give up. They won't stop. Once he understood those negative thoughts were not coming from him, and he didn't have to believe the lies that they were telling him. Where are they coming from? Who would ever choose to have a negative thought? And so the initial thought comes in, comes from a spiritual place, comes in from consciousness. And when they come in, right, it happens so fast, we actually believe them. Then we enforce them, and then we speak them out loud, and then they become a part of us. So we don't have the power of the first thought, but we have the power of the second thought. So the initial thought is not from you because you would never choose that thought. But then if you believe the lie and you keep repeating the lie, then it starts to really affect you. And this young man was beating himself up for the thoughts in his head. He was feeling guilt and shame. Once you understood this, he said, wow, I don't have to believe those lies. I could speak truth to the lies. I could speak words of encouragement. And part of that is Instagram. No one else can define me. No one else can define who I am. I will never let the opinion of others affect who I am. And I will not compare my life to someone else's life because they don't have a better life. They just have a better editor. And as we're looking at their life, we can often compare. So it's really not social media. It's comparison. And when we compare ourselves to others, we feel less than. And that's sort of Well, it's how you control. digest the social media. It's how you because digest it. But it is more, it is harder to avoid. It's harder because it's more prevalent. It's like when I was young, 
the new neighbor got a great car or a new house or a new pool, and you were jealous of that neighbor. You had the cool kid at school who had the great outfit and so forth, and you were jealous of that kid. Now there's a thousand or a million cool kids on Instagram. So you're seeing more of it. And great lives that you're not having, parties you weren't invited to. Right, and now it's hitting you every single day, so it takes a toll. But the power is helping these kids realize we don't create from the outside in. We create from the inside out. But how, how do you get self-esteem if you don't have the parents or, the, or you have less than an ideal setup? Right. It's amazing. When you look at people who have grit, they had one person who believed Another in them. Another best-selling book, by the yeah. way, grit. One person who supported them. One person who, who thought they could accomplish something. For me, it was teachers and coaches in my life who believed in me. My mom, who passed away when I was 59 years old, she believed in me. You say if someone doesn't believe in you, what do you do? Guess what? You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to define your self-worth, not by anything outside you, but within you. And this book, I wrote this one truth so that kids can read this book. Teenagers can read it. I taught it to an eighth grader, and he got it, was a quarterback, and went to a whole new level. As a young person, you could read this, and let me be your coach. Let me encourage you. Let me tell you who you are and how you should define yourself. And guess what? When Superman took off his Superman outfit, who was he? Well, people say Clark Kent. No, he was still Superman. You are who you are on the inside. So you got to realize you create from the inside out. That's how we help these kids. How do you, so you easily understand, sadly, that why teen suicide rates are high today in 2023 than they were in 2015, 2000, or when you grew up. Here's why. Like that young man who was suicidal. Once he was believing the lies of those thoughts and beating himself up and feeling guilt and shame, now he's losing the battle for his mind and he's beating himself once he realizes there's a battle for your mind, negative thoughts are trying to divide you, separate you, weaken you, and make you feel powerless. The root for the Greek word of anxious means to separate and divide. So when you feel anxious, you feel separate and you feel divided. Well, guess what? I teach these kids and everyone else how to unite with love. I teach them how to tune into the positive. Trust in truth. Trust. Truth. Speak truth to the lies. You unite with love. Love casts out fear. N, neutralize the negativity. E, Elevate your thinking. So I did that with this young man, the six, the six, 17-year-old. Guess what happened? Literally the next day his parents said, what did you do? Like he's, he's fine. I reached out to him about a month ago. How you doing? Doing great, Mr. Gordon. High state of mind. Right. And lastly, we have, when we come back to the Ds, we're going to handle these. How many Ds? There are five Ds. All right. When we come back, you got to get through five Ds. I've shortened the segment because I've gone along here. But um, the other thing is be gratitude. gratitude. Oh, yeah. Even if you're sitting there in a homeless shelter or there's got to be something good. Try to find something good that's going on that you appreciate, whether it's your health or your shoes or whatever. And that's probably a good place to start. You write about that, too. Uh, the name of the book is The One Truth. Elevate your mind, unlock your power, heal your soul. John Gordon in studio. Uh, back in a moment. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, John Gordon spent about 12 minutes making your life better. He's going to make it a little bit better now. It's called The One Truth. Elevate your mind, unlock your power, and heal your soul. John Gordon in studio. John, you break down, is it the four Ds? Right. Actually, five Ds. There's one extra one, but it's, it's doubt. It starts with doubt. So negative thoughts will sabotage us, and it comes in the seed of a doubt that can grow into a forest of uncertainty and fear. Second D is distortion. I talked about earlier, negative thoughts are lies that will tell you things about yourself and your future that just aren't true. You're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not successful enough. 
you're not going to get through this health diagnosis or the relationship isn't going to improve. So those thoughts are always coming in. But again, they are lies. And what do they do? They discourage you. That's the third day. And you'll play out to make them a re- to make the ugly worry a reality. Right. And it becomes a reality because you actually what we believe we create. And so that third day leads to discouragement. Right. So we get doubt. We get distortions. Then we're discouraged and we don't give up because it's hard. We give up because we get discouraged. And we've seen teams give up because of discouragement and people give up because they're so discouraged and they lose hope. And then there's that fourth D, which is distraction. And distractions are the enemy of greatness. And the distraction is anything that keeps you from being your best. It could be social media. It could be that bright, shiny object that you want that's actually not really good for your purpose and your meaning and your mission. So it's a distraction. And then the fifth D is divide. And we talked about earlier that that the root for the Greek word of anxious means to separate and divide. So when we are anxious, we feel separate and we feel divided. We feel weak. We feel powerless. And that's what negative thoughts do. Think about it. Fear divides. Negative thoughts divide. Love unites. And that's the whole point of the one truth, oneness and separateness. Am I moving towards oneness and connection where there's power? Am I moving towards separation and weakness where I lose power? And distraction, I believe you wrote about it in your book. It's easy. So you, you have an objective you want to do, whether you want to finish your house, finish that driveway, uh, or maybe go back to school and something happens, you find, figure out a distraction. For a while, you had writer's block. Yeah, I had writer's block because I was distracted. I had fear and those negative thoughts that were keeping me from writing my book. And what was the fear? Well, I couldn't write The Carpenter because I was fearful that I wasn't going to write a good book. That energy, you had a huge hit. Energy Bus was a huge hit. It sold 3 million copies, right? So people were saying like, oh, your best work is behind you. And I started to think maybe my best work was behind me and I'm going to write a piece of junk. So I woke up not being able to write. And then I woke up one morning with the idea that love casts out fear. All I got to do, love the reader. Love writing, love the process. And if I do that, you will love what the process produces. I wrote that book in three weeks. Wow. Uh, so one of the people that you, you work with regularly is a friend of yours is Dabo Sweeney. Uh, he is the head coach of Clemson. And I love the class way. I remember he lost to Syracuse. And he goes, I know you want to talk about how we were upset, but this is about Syracuse. They beat us. He got upset by Duke. Now, this is your guy. So tell me the, his mindset, why it works, and what role you play with him. He is my guy, and that was a tough loss, and it was a tough loss to watch. But, but I know him. He's a competitor. He's a fierce competitor. But he's also going to look at himself and his coaches, and he's going to look at his team and say, why did we lose? What do we need to do better? Obviously, two fumbles in the 10-yard line and a missed field goal is one of the reasons why you lose. But he is such an optimist. He always believes that they're going to find a way forward and get better, and he's always instilling belief in his team. I arrived when they were four and three a few years ago and they played Florida State, spoke to the team that night, and then we won every game for the rest of the season. But it wasn't me. I saw Dabo's belief, optimism. Everyone else was getting down being negative. This coach was still believing. It's, it's like Dion, right? Dion Sanders. He's, he's all about belief. He's already built Colorado into a winner because of belief. And 85 new guys. <laughs> you have that talent. And his, and his son is really good at but, quarterback. But you have that talent. Yes. Belief and talent together <laughs> right. wins championships yeah, great and players. culture. He's one of these great players. Seems to be a great coach. The One Truth, the name of the book. Download it or, or download it and give it to somebody or buy it and give it to somebody or read it yourself or both. Congratulations, John. Hey, thanks, Brian. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, John Eisenberg at the bottom of the hour, author of the brand new book, Rocket Men, 
the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. And remember, it was John Gillum and in, in, I remember with the Pittsburgh Steelers and James Harris uh, with the Rams and D- Doug Williams. And you could really remember the few black quarterbacks. Now it's mostly the story. What was the issue? Uh, what was the issue? And, um, and why does it work so well now? We'll talk about that. And guess what? Charles Payne's in studio, host of Making Money with Charles Payne, who also has a, a book out. Charles, you've just finished your book on July 4th. Yeah, the the new one isn't out yet. Uh, it will be. I just finished my third book on July 4th. The last book, uh, Unstoppable Prosperity, has gone through the roof. Uh, I got to be honest with you. I had no idea. Like when we started talking about it, maybe 50,000 copies, you know, 100,000. So far, it's over 400,000 copies. Wow. Uh, and just it's just gone through the roof. People love it everywhere I go now. People, you know, they in addition to, of course, Fox and Fox Business, they're like, hey, you know what? I read your book. I, my father read your book or whatever. And I love it because I wrote it for everybody. You know, my whole thing, you know me, Brian, I, it's, I, I want people to find a way to change their lives economically. And you just cannot do it paycheck to paycheck. You have to learn to make your money work for you. There's a lot of things you can invest in. My forte just happens to be the stock market. Right. And you still believe in the market? I believe in investing in individual companies that have amazing potential to make money, particularly American companies. We're the hub of innovation. It's nuts that we use these things in our personal lives, that they're such important parts of our lives, right? And we don't know. People just don't connect the dots to the idea that they could be owner of these companies. I mean, think about how many times you say, golly, I wish I had invented Facebook. I wish I had invented this chip. You know, I wish I had done that. Well, guess what? Maybe you didn't, but you can still become part owner of that company. And people do not connect those dots. They don't allow themselves to connect those dots, in part because the industry has spent the last 100 years saying, hey, this is just a little bit too tough for you to figure out. Give us your money and we'll invest it for you. And do you feel like that is lazy? No, no, it's intimidation. People are intimidated. People are, are legitimately intimidated. And then, listen, every time the market crashes, everyone hears about it. But when markets are making new all-time highs, oh, I didn't know that. People don't know. That's not news. You know, uh, in New York, it's so funny. The local station, Channel 5, Fox Channel 5, uh, the only time I've ever been on there is during market crashes. They've come to my house. Hey, don't even worry about coming to the studio. We'll come to you. But, uh, you know, every day, oh, the market's at a new all-time high. I wonder when Channel 5 is going to call me. So people just have been so intimidated. They're so afraid. And it's so crazy because they'll tell me things like, I don't want to lose all my money. And I'm like, I just don't think you're going to lose all your money in Amazon. I got a feeling that when you die, Amazon will still be around. So that shouldn't be your greatest fear. That shouldn't be your greatest concern. Your greatest concern should be how to manage a portfolio, portfolio that's working for me. But as far as like the notion of losing all your money, no, the way you lose all your money, put it underneath the pillow because gradually it loses purchasing power to the point where it's, it's down to zero. That's what happens. And that's what we're seeing now. Uh, there seems like inflation for the first time since I've known you is a legitimate factor. And people say, well, it was 9%. Now it's 3%. <laughs> but it was, it's 3%, but the 9% was still there. It still went up that much, but it only went up 3%. Listen, if it's zero and it goes to 9%, and then zero and it goes to 3%, it's still up 100%, right? I mean, inflation is still a major, 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 major problem. It does not change, particularly but, in things like food, right? Right. That's not what Jared Bernstein says, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Cut 59. I got to live in the real world, in the real history, and in the real world, real wages are beating prices. That is a very welcome trend. 
82% support capping insulin costs for seniors at $35 a month. 81% support giving Medicare the power to negotiate for lower drug prices. 79% support tax incentives to create more manufacturing jobs. 77% support capping out-of-pocket costs on prescription drugs. These are all measures that are in place. These are the components of Bidenomics. So when someone tells you Americans don't like Bidenomics, it's false. Americans approve of the components above 80%. I saw that, and I got to give kudos to Shannon Bream. Oh, my God. I would have been pulling my hair out. This guy, Jared, by the way, Jared's been doing this for a long time, right? He knows how to get on TV and, and try to spin a tell. Uh, you know, the, the notion that inflation, that wages are and beating inflation, yeah, it's done that for two months after 26 months in a row of being down. 26 months in a row. This is what they do. You can't cherry pick because in real life it doesn't matter. If I've lost purchasing power 26 out of 27 months, don't tell me the last month was okay. Don't tell me that because, right. you know, when I've gone from 100 to 10, don't tell me everything. And then, oh, from 10 to 12, I'm okay. It all is well. It's not well. And, and, you know, some of the things he was saying, I thought it was interesting, tax tax incentives to create, he slipped in manufacturing jobs. But how about the notion of tax incentives to create jobs? How about we stop with these high taxes and punishing success? How about a low tax regime, a low tax regime to create jobs across the board? See, that's where they really make a mistake because in a way he admitted that you can incentivize growth. With tax policy, you don't incentivize any kind of growth by taking money from confiscation of more money. All you do is have people hoard money, particularly those who have it, like rich people and corporations. So how come the this is what some people are writing over the weekend? The deficit is doubled. Unemployment is down. Uh, spending is less than inflation, but is slightly up. Right. So you have we're over deficit. We're over by a trillion. We're overdrawn by a trillion dollars. So they say never before has our economy grown and yet our deficits doubled while jobs are down. They said they've never seen anything quite like this. This is very a very unique time. First and foremost, let's begin these any conversation about where the economy is right now must begin with the record amount of money that was poured into this economy. Over because, the last two years. Right, right. Particularly the amounts from President Biden, because it's one thing it's one thing to close down an economy because of this unknown fear of this unknown disease, right? And, and, and okay, everyone in the world shutting down, we've got to shut down. Uh, you know, that you've got to make up for that. So we understood that deficit spending. But the extra $1.9 trillion that President Biden put into this economy. Rescue package. That, that, that Larry Summers and other Democrats warned. Told not to. Right. You, you, we started this conversation off with inflation. The reason why we have inflation, had a, this inflation spike and we're still dealing with it, uh, after a 40-year hiatus where many economists thought it was never possible to even have to have this conversation again was because when you start to pour trillions and trillions and trillions into an economy and on top of that say, hey, by the way, don't pay your student loans. By the way, don't pay your rent. By the way, don't do this. Um, you create this wonderful period. It's like going to the bar, right? And it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night. We're feeling really good, man. We're right. knocking them back. But there's a cost to this that's so much greater than, than that money. That whole free money experiment might help you get elected in the midterm elections. It will look good on your track record when you, uh, when you say, look at my nominal GDP growth. But you won't be able to say, look at the pain that people endured. At least you, you should be ashamed to say because that's what's happening. Not only that, we're enduring this pain on one hand, this inflation pain, knowing right around the corner there's going to be a recession pain. Imagine that, the ultimate one-two punch. You can't, you, yeah, you know what? You used to have 100 bucks when you went to the grocery store and you came out with two bags. 
All of a sudden, you had 150 bucks, but you only came out with one bag. Guess what? Pretty soon, you won't have any money, and you won't come out with any bags because you won't have any money. Which is crazy. And also, when you have uh, oil and gas starting to go up, right? Under $4, over $4. I just had somebody in from California, um, Andrew Gruel, mm-hmm. was in. He's paying seven dollars for gas. Yeah. Well, California- so, so is that having, and at the same time, you stop drilling in right. Alaska right. while Saudi Arabia is cutting prices. That's that's not great leadership. No, it's awful leadership. Unless unless your goal was never about economics, unless your goal was never about the health of the of, of uh, Middle America, or you didn't care about the American family. Unless your goal was always about the climate driven agenda, which puts the uh, you know this this sort of almost. Uh, Mother Nature, God as a as a deity, uh, you know. It's religion. It's, it's, it's a religion, and and by the way, it's been around since the late eighteen hundreds. This is not brand new. They keep trying it over and over again. They did it through Maltese, uh, uh, Maltese rather. You saw it in the nineteen seventies, uh, and you know. That, by the way, it's, it wasn't a coincidence that we used to we started getting all those kind of movies about you know the soiling green and things like that. Uh, all of this kind of fear factor has been permeating in our economy, in our system, in our in our media, and because it, it's an idea that won't go away, and I and it's so weird because the higher someone goes up in these academic levels, the more they seem to embrace this, and and really, you know, I think it's a godless kind of thing to be quite frank with you, and so that's why they obviously to win elections you have to be able to mask this in the veneer of economics, right. but it has zero to do with economics. I want you to hear Joe Biden's economics. He was expanding on all he's done. Cut fifty-seven. Nearly thirteen million five hundred thousand jobs just since you got me sworn in in, in January twenty twenty. Eight hundred thousand new manufacturing jobs. But you wouldn't know from all the negative news you hear. But we're getting through this one of the greatest job creation periods in American history. For real, that's a fact. And you know, it wasn't that long ago we were losing jobs in this country. In fact, the guy who held this job before me was just one of two presidents in history. Left office with fewer jobs in America than when he got elected office. I mean, (laughs) Uh, it's just so disingenuous. Again, uh, this thing called COVID, you know, I mean, it's just so... It's so disingenuous that that seventy percent of the jobs they say that he brought back uh, were the pre-pandemic jobs that people just right, went right. back to no, jobs. If you had. look, if you look, uh, you know, one of the things that you do in economics is you always have these trend lines, right? And the trend is going up, you know, in terms of jobs. I mean, greater population, more jobs. That goes hand in hand. We haven't even got to pre-pandemic trends, and I don't think we're going to get there. We haven't got to pre-pandemic trends on wages or job creation. That's an important word. Job creation, not jobs that, you know, were lost temporarily because of the pandemic and the emergency measures that were taken during the pandemic, because that's not job creation. We, we put a job back that was already in place. That's good. It's good someone got their jobs back. But then there's also the composition of these jobs, mm-hmm. Brian. You know, just so many leisure and hospitality jobs. And, again, I'm one of these people. I love when people have a job. But those are the lowest paying jobs of all the different job sectors. And for a moment, we did have these warehousing jobs. Uh, where people were able to leave retail and, and leisure and get a be- and make a lot more money, almost double the money. But the last four or five job supports have been negative. We've seen actually losses in warehousing jobs. So people are going back to working in bars and restaurants for very small amounts of money. Uh, and, and on top of that, we've had seven months in a row with temp jobs. We've lost temp jobs. We lost 112,000 temp jobs this year. Why is that so important as a metric? Because when a, a business is doing good, they hire a lot of temps and then eventually make them permanent. 
When they're not doing good, they fire the temps. And then guess who get fired after all the temps are fired? Uh, absolutely. I get it. Last question, Charles. It's the most important one. You see what's happened with these inner cities and these uh, migrants that have come in and overwhelmed, whether it's the airports in Chicago and the police station in Chicago, the schools here, 195 hotels, 200 facilities. When you see uh, all this happening and then you see the lack of uh, crime and pu- they see the crime rise and punishment uh, lessen, do you think Republicans have an opportunity to get into the minority communities and say, I have a better plan? Some have expressed frustration no matter when we come in and what we say, we just can't break the stranglehold Democrats have. Yeah, but you can't do it at election time only. <laughs> right? How about really putting on a full court press the day after the election, especially if you lose? You can't just come. It's going to be this disingenuous. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that Democrats have this stranglehold because the fact of the matter is, in my opinion, most Democrats have a very low opinion of black people. That's why they give our kids subpar educations. They don't think our kids have the intelligence for a rigorous education. So they give us watered-down educations. And guess what? When you're in 12th grade and you're reading at a ninth grade reading level, they offer you a Faustian deal. All right? We'll help you with housing. We'll give you food stamps. We'll make corporations hire you. In return, you make sure you vote for us forever. This is a deal with the devil. And, you know, some black people are waking up more and more waking up. But the other side of that has to be a convincing sales pitch. Something on the other side. Did right. you, did you, Republicans right. care. Do, do you, are you for or against the dissipation of affirmative action? Um, I'm not a big fan of affirmative action. Uh, I, I think any of those things are gimmicky, honestly. It's like if I was, if I was a corporation and I didn't, let's just say I was a racist and I owned the company, and someone said, well, you got to hire, you got 1,000 employees, you got to hire 10, 10 black people. I would hire the 10 worst black people. And say, look, they can't do the job. I tried. I, those things, we should have a merit-based society. You're not going to get around people who hate you through legislation like that. You know, listen, you don't want anybody burning down your house or burning a crossing yard. But, you know, we need to get to a merit-based situation. And listen, I'm also a small business owner and have been for almost 40 years. You want to be able to just get, you know, I think if people get a shot, you know, the idea of just looking at a piece of paper or a resume or, you know, that, you know, we, I, I think we shouldn't even be judging people on that anyway. We need to sit down and have a heart-to-heart. When I got my first interview on Wall Street, the guy said there were people who were more qualified than me. But our interview was the best. My interview with him was the best, and I got the job. 13000 a year was one of the happiest days of my life. Right. Yeah, so uh, we, don't need, we don't need affirmative action in this country. Um, and, and I think – and I, 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 do, I do think, though, that we, we, need, we need to find a way – to just get rid of all the isms, to be quite frank with you. I, they'll always linger because part of it's human nature, right, whether it's nepotism or cronyism yeah. or elitism or whatever the ism is. But we don't need to force things because when you try to force them, it doesn't work. Uh, I, I think we've grown enough as a nation that we just keep – listen, you get bumps in the road. There's always going to be bumps in the road. I'm, I, I'm, I look at charts all day long. No chart has ever gone up in a straight line. Even when it looks like it, when you pull in closer, yeah. like I can show you a chart of the stock market over 200 years, look like it never went down. But we know at times, at times yeah. it does go down. It's like Uri KG. Uh, but hopefully it keeps beating. Charles Payne, uh, host of Making Money. He's coming up at 2 o'clock today on Fox Business Channel. Uh, Charles, congratulations. And when we want to get your books, where do we go? Uh, UnstoppableProsperity.com. Okay. Uh, Charles, great to see you. Thank you. All right. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show.
a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. That's why today we are also announcing a proposed rule to protect more than 13 million acres of the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska called the NPRA. The proposal would prohibit any new leasing in 10.6 million acres, which is more than 40% of the reserve. It would ensure maximum protection of these most sensitive areas known as special areas. As the people of Alaska, they want to drill responsibly. They care about the caribou. They want a tree. They like lakes. They like clean water. But they also know they got oil and gas. And everybody there is paid oil and gas. They get paid to live in Alaska. And when Donald Trump made part of his tax reform, it passed, by the way, uh, drilling in Anwar. That was a big thing. So they released the leases. They bid on them. And they're ready to go. And in comes Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, an interior secretary who wants to stop drilling without replenishing our strategic oil reserve. Think about that. So we're more susceptible now. We're paying higher for oil and gas. And they just made 10 million plus acres undrillable that are filled with oil and gas. We're going to get it from somewhere. The Saudis, the Venezuelans, the Iranians. Get somebody else. But we're just not going to do it. And that's a good thing in her mind. And she's Secretary of the Interior. When people say, you know, the next election is going to matter a lot, the next election is going to matter. Because, number one, you got to sue. Congress passed this. You just, as an executive, decide I'm going to undo it. As an executive, we paid for a wall to be put up. It just sits in the desert. And when a, a law is about to be passed to put it up, you're selling it off with pennies on the dollar. I'm pretty sure that's not the way our system's meant to work. Brian Kilmeade Show. John Eisenberg next, author of a great book. It's called Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. NFL starts tonight. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. There are probably a variety of reasons, um, probably none of them good, because the, the, the reality is there's such great talent at that position, black and white. I think we have 11 black starting quarterbacks today. They're some of the best leaders I've ever seen. They're extraordinary. And that is Commissioner Roger Goodell talking about why it took so long to get two black quarterbacks starting in the Super Bowl. John Eisenberg knows all about it. Author of a brand new book, Rocket Man, the black quarterback who revolutionized pro football. John, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, congratulations on the book. What prompted it? <clears throat> well, uh, you know, this is my 11th book of sports. I've been writing sports for 40 years and, and race. Uh, uh, has, has been a constant thread through many things. If you've written sports for a living in this day, in this century and going back more, you can't avoid it. And it, I, I live in Baltimore where Lamar Jackson landed five years ago. It was fascinating to watch his sort of development. And this is a guy so good, MVP in his second year in the league, who uh, was told by one scout at the Combine, uh, are you going to run wind sprints because you'd be a great receiver? So, and this is near the end of the first century of the NFL. Uh, this, so some of the stuff still going on, sort of the denial by stereotype, or at least the thinking. So I thought, you know, this is a great subject. It's a big subject, but uh, I think I want to take it on. Yeah, and you did. Uh, tell me about Marlon Briscoe. Well, <clears throat> Marlon Briscoe is the first modern black quarterback. Uh, it was 1968. Uh, he was with the Denver Broncos in the AFL, by the way, not the NFL. 
And he uh, had been a really good uh, small college quarterback at the University of Omaha in Nebraska, but he wasn't going to play co- uh, pro quarterback. The Broncos said, well, you'll be a defensive back. That's what happened to uh, black, good college black quarterbacks in that era. They were told to switch positions. But the Broncos that season ran out of quarterbacks. Everybody got hurt. So they put Briscoe on the field. And he lit it up. He, he ran around, and he was uh, effective. He threw long touchdown passes. He could run. And they, they weren't a great team, but he played exceptionally well. But uh, when the season ends and they have quarterback meetings for the next year, he's not, not even invited. So he's right. basically told, uh, your career at quarterback is over. You're never going to do that for wow. us again. So he had to – he eventually was traded or actually was cut by the Broncos and landed with another team and had to play another position, a wide receiver, to have a pro career. Here is Marlon Briscoe talking about this to Nine News locally. Cut 46. All the turmoil that was prevalent, you know, in our world. And so since so many changes was happening, you know, in our culture, uh, the quarterback breakthrough as a black quarterback in our society just seems appropriate. And, you know, he taught there's no bitterness there, really? Uh, no, I mean, there, there really wasn't. I mean, uh, Marlon, uh, uh, you know, has since passed away. I interviewed him before he passed away. And, and, and uh, you know, he said, listen, you know, I grew up in the 50s. And so I, I was sort of used to, as a black American, you know, I was used to uh, having to fight my way through things and, uh, you know, be, be and have disappointments. And so he was just accustomed to it. Uh, and he said he was not bitter, actually. He was asked directly that question. He was not bitter, but uh, frustrated that he didn't get to play quarterback because he could have been a really good one in the NFL. I always remember, you know, John Gilliam with the Steelers, and I also remember James Harris. So James Harris by the Rams and played for the Bills. I want you to hear uh, Jack Kemp and Billy Shaw talk about James Harris, Cup 48. Harris did so well that he earned the starting assignment by beating out the people's choice veteran Jack Kemp. I'm not bragging about it, but I had a very strong arm. <laughs> Sounds braggadocious, but I, I had a, a, and he had a stronger arm than I had. He was certainly the first black quarterback in Buffalo. It was not an issue with me, but it was, you know, be honest it was it was new so their reaction as james harris how important was he from grambling right james harris was from grambling that's right and you know six foot four 210 pounds big arm could throw it a mile uh super smart and gets drafted in the eighth round uh by the buffalo bills if uh you know probably should have been a first round draft pick but uh, and so the Bills, he did. He earned the starting job as a rookie, uh, but he was pulled from that first game, uh, the first uh, game of the Bills that year. Same year as O.J. Simpson, by the way, as a rookie. And uh, he never really played much for him again. And then he was out of the sport for a year. And it looked like I mean, there were no other black quarterbacks in pro football. So he was really fighting uh, a strong tide. And then Eddie Robinson arranged to get him on the practice squad with the Rams in the 70s, 1973, I think it was. And by 74, 
you know, there was a lot of key figures along the way that helped open the door. Chuck Knox was a, a coach, a good head coach back in the day, and he was willing. He looked on the practice field. He was with the Rams, and he said, you know, the guy that's best out here is James Harris. I'm going to put him on the field yep. and start him with the Los Angeles Rams. He was a black quarterback. No one else had really done that. And so James Harris winds up leading the Rams to two NFC championship games. He was an outstanding NFL quarterback. But again, uh, ownership, uh, Carol Rosenblum uh, wanted a little more excitement uh, at the quarterback position in Los Angeles. And that was pretty much the end of James Harris's starting career. He could have gone on farther, but it was pretty much taken from him. And uh, he wound up being a backup the rest of Amazing his career. Amazing, too. I remember Jaworski was there. Pat Hayden was there. Jaworski got yep. traded. Hayden got the job. Uh, and Jim Harris was a better quarterback. He seemed to be bigger. He was a straight drop-back quarterback, too, unlike Randall Cunningham. But Doug Williams broke through like nobody else, MVP of the Super Bowl. Here he is uh, talking about winning it for the Redskins. Cut 49. Doug Williams has been voted the MVP of the game. And look at his teammates surrounding Doug Williams. Up, down, yo-yo type of year. You could say that for a career. This ends what has been a class week. For the Washington Redskins and Doug Williams in particular. Our congratulations to Joe Gibbs, the Redskins, and in particular, Doug Williams. Sensational. He reflected later, cut 50. Every article that was written was never just Doug Williams, quarterback. It was always Doug Williams, the black quarterback, a Tampa Bay's black quarterback. So that adjective is not, it's, it's removed. And these guys not only removing those adjectives, they moving the stigma that a black man cannot lead a team to the Super Bowl. I love it. I mean, you, it's it's hard to, to get to this. You got to be sitting in my shoes to really, really understand what is transpiring and, and what this is all about. What has he meant uh, to your mission? By the way, talking to John Eisenberg, author of uh, Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. Well, uh, Doug's place, uh, obviously huge. This is not a story. Uh, my, my book is a century of, uh, of the, the plight for many years of black quarterbacks in the NFL. And it's not a Jackie Robinson story. There's not one moment where, uh, you know, a guy goes on the field and everything changes and you have a holiday, you can celebrate all that. It, it, there was not that moment. It's a bunch of littler moments. And like James Harris getting to play, like I mentioned. But there's no doubt that of those moments, the biggest is Doug Williams winning Super Bowl MVP and and leading the Redskins to a victory and proving, yes, as he said in that clip, yes, there were there were this was 1988. I mean, it's not ancient history. It was a while ago, but it's not ancient history. And there were a lot of people that I think didn't believe that a black player, a black quarterback could lead a team to a Super Bowl victory. Doug proved that wrong and uh, changed a lot of minds. Uh, you know, he had a huge game. And so that, that's the biggest moment in this story. Uh, there are many others, but that's the one where everything uh, starts to change. I find it very interesting that a lot of the quarterbacks were traditional. I agree, you know, I always thought of Randall Cunningham, revolutionized position, Patrick Mahomes. They were like scrambling quarterbacks. But a lot of the ones like Warren Moon and Doug Williams and James Harris, they were drop-back quarterbacks. And Warren Moon probably had to do more than most. This guy had to go to the CFL, establish himself, come back, and then win his position. He ends up in the Hall of Fame. He talked about the struggle, cut 53. Even when people were, like, cheering me, I'd hear people behind the bench, like, throw that ball like you chuck a watermelon, Mm -hmm. and and, just comments like that. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) I just hear that. He went on, cut 54. 
Starting the starting to play the position in the '60s, actually in Pop Warner football, I even had a problem, you know, just being able to play quarterback at my high school as an African American because we had coaches that just kind of felt that way, just kind of thought that way. As far as being able to go forward in the sport, I wasn't sure how far I was going to be able to go because there wasn't a whole lot of people like like me out there playing it, and I knew it was going to be difficult. But there's a it was a mentality out there that didn't want us to do it because they didn't want to see an African-American guy in those type of leadership roles. Was it, do you think it was, uh, there was a belief out there that they couldn't, or were they afraid that they would dominate a position that was so high profile in the 60s and 70s and 50s? Uh, I think uh, the first thing, I, you know, I think there was really a belief that they couldn't uh, for, for the most part. I'm not, you know, I, I hate to, to sweep with a broad brush here. Uh, so, because uh, you know, there were a lot of people with a lot of different opinions about things, but I, I do believe it was baked into sort of the DNA. Of, I, I talked to some scouts. Uh, Upton Bell is the son of Bert Bell, who uh, was a commissioner way back in the 40s and 50s. He was a scout with the Baltimore Colts in the early 1960s, and Upton, you know, said, "Listen, when I got out on the road as a scout with the Baltimore Colts in the 60s, there were a lot of guys with, uh, you know, who." just didn't think that these black quarterbacks could play in the pros. You know, they didn't think they were smart enough. They didn't think they could lead. They didn't think they had the discipline, all this, uh, you know, myth and stereotype. And he said, you know, uh, it was when younger scouts like myself started to come in and say, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, even then, it didn't change for a number of decades. But that was what he identified as uh, sort of just baked into the DNA of, of the thinking uh, at that point in pro football. And then to, for you, having written this book, how significant was the two black quarterbacks starting in the NFL and that people don't really, I don't even think people bring it up anymore. I mean, I, I just don't know if a, of a co especially a coach out there would ever say, well, I'd like that guy, but he's an American Indian. I like that guy, but I don't, you know, I don't want a black quarterback. Do you think that stuff exists anymore today? Well, I, I do think, I mean, the, 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 uh, the things have changed dramatically, there's no doubt, and I agree with you. I mean, the fact that three of the first four picks in the draft, this recent draft for black quarterbacks, tells you yeah. both teams are not seeing color anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they got a high pick. They're, they're casting their future. That's who they want. Uh, that tells you a lot, and it's happening more and more, and it's going to continue to happen because there's more great players coming out of college football, black quarterbacks. So uh, that, I think, has changed. I mean, there's no doubt that it's changed. It's huge. But uh, I do think also that uh, when you really crunch the numbers, the, the black population at the quarterback position is still uh, roughly half that uh, as it is at other positions on a percentage basis. So uh, there's definitely been some sort of reflexive, I don't know what you call it, skepticism or uncertainty. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, as you said, I think it's changing. I think it's changing pretty rapidly. But, uh, you know, so there, that, that, those numbers tell you that something is still there, but it is changing for sure. That's awesome. Uh, and finally, Jalen uh, Hurt uh, weighed in after his Eagles. Uh, his Eagles end up losing to Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs, but he, he played real well. Cut 51. I think you have to give credit to the historic moment that's about to take place. We know who we are and what we're playing for. And so it's obviously we want to win. We want to have success. Um, but at the end of the day, we know why we're stepping on that field, and it's for a much, much bigger reason. So that was uh, that was significant. Both men knew it. Oh, they totally knew it. They're young guys that totally grasped the history. It was 
wonderful scene. It was great. Uh, you know, I would say this about it. You know, it's uh, do you raise your arms in triumph? No, I would say. Was it something to be celebrated? Yes. But it shows you, and it's wonderful that it happened, but it shows you what could have been, what could have been for many years, many decades. These guys came into the Super Bowl. They played great. They both played well enough to win. It was spectacular. But I think the same could be said for a lot of guys uh, going back decades. And uh, unfortunately, many of them did not get the chance because uh, of the way that uh, the league operated back then and what so many people thought of black quarterbacks. So that part of the story is, is just so unfortunate. And uh, it's what I tried to unpack in my book, just to uh, let people know that, yes, this happened. You know, let's, let's not forget it. Absolutely. And, and that's what brought it all together. Uh, pick up John Eisenberg's book. Uh, it's called Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. John, thanks for doing this. Uh, it was great. Thank you very much. You got it. one 408 7669 We'll find out if there's more to know and get your calls when the Brian Kilmeade Show continues. The fastest growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Why do we have to do this again? They said they want to freshen up the show a little bit. Just be open-minded. You have a very large mind in that head of yours, so uh, just open it. Another forehead joke? I get it. No wonder they want to freshen things up. All right, fine. Let's do this. Send them in. Trevor, do you think a jaguar could defeat a giant? Well, a giant is a mythical concept, so... And what about a horse? Do you think a jaguar could defeat a horse? Is this really what you guys spend your time thinking about? Basically. I mean, there's a Mr. Right Commissioner, sir, what's up? How are the auditions for the third host going? Uh, How are you not getting yeah, this? Not great. Here, then you introduce yourself. It's basic audition. Maybe it doesn't have to be a player or a coach. These guys got no chance. I'm just here because you guys have the most punchable faith in the history of punching faces. You guys don't like my lines over there? Will Arnett, actor. I also have a comedy show, and uh, we interview a ton of celebrities. And watch a football game at the same time? Uh, no. So it's a worse version of our show. Yep. Guess it's just the two of us again this season. Unless there's someone on that list who is just perfect for the job. Nope. Not on this list. You've been waiting here a long time, too? No. I didn't get the Manning Cash job. I guess I'll just come back and play football again. That is uh, so that's Tom Brady on the outside. That was uh, just a promo for the Manning cast. It is. They were holding open auditions for a third host. I mean, it goes on for seven minutes. The, the celebrities <laughs> and sports icons and just people in general that are in it, it's, it's very entertaining. That was just a minute and a half of it. Wow. I would love to see that. Uh, I had no idea it was out there. I know they're doing some type of telestrator situation where I guess Peyton's going to be scripting things out more. I, I don't, you know, I see that much. I, I'm wondering, too, how you grow. In the beginning, it's stunning. People try to replicate it. No one's has with other sports. But would you do it if it, uh, when it's juiced up Monday Night Football? You want a traditional Monday Night Football, you get a solid booth. I don't even know who's in it. But for the Manning cast, it's revolutionized the whole thing. And Peyton Manning, amazing what he's done with Eli. They're self-deprecating, even though they don't have to be, obviously. A lot going for them. And they have celebrities in. But sometimes you lose the game. He's going to start maybe zeroing in on the game. Maybe they got some feedback. And these guys are such experts on the game. One's a Hall of Famer, one's a future Hall of Famer. So he's going to be start scripting plays, giving out more information. So that should be good. 
I mean, it should be. At the same time, like, their chemistry and just the way they interact with everyone is hilarious. So then where are they going to put this after the game so you can see more of it? You mean? Like, how can they expand it then past oh, the game, right? right? Because people I know. want to see the other stuff, But I too. also think part of it is they don't overdo it. I mean, for six months, we haven't had it. True. I think it, it could get old. I mean, they tried this in baseball with A-Rod, and I don't know who else. And it hasn't really caught on. But it's the chemistry. They're like it's the chemistry of the brothers. Like I'm not one to watch football every week, but they're I will watch their clips every time. Right. I wonder did Cooper make the auditions? I didn't see him in because there. Cooper's on Fox. He usually yeah. does a show before Fox NFL Sunday. I mean, but so Tom that Brady would be was funny. In it. You know, he's the older brother Cooper, and then comes Eli. It's like Chuck from Happy Days. Chuck was in the first few episodes and he just disappeared. They thought nobody's watching him anyway. Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.